This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, perspectives on foreign affairs from the Irish Times network of foreign correspondents around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. In America, the Republican race for the presidential nomination, dominated for the last few months by the extraordinary Donald Trump, has in recent days been evolving into two parallel contests. Surgeon and non-politician Ben Carson has passed out Trump in the polls, while the among the also-rans, Marco Rubio has been eclipsing Jeb Bush, leading speculation that the latter may pull out. Simon Carson will be joining me from Washington to discuss a race that has now come alive. But first, China. The one-child policy was introduced in China in the late 1970s by Deng Xiaoping in a bid to control spiralling population numbers. It's been a very controversial uh, policy, to say the least, and not least because of its often brutal enforcement with numerous forced abortions and infanticides. It has also had a profound effect on the character of Chinese society, not least the skewed sex ratio and the emergence of a new class of so-called little emperors. Now China is faced with the opposite demographic challenge. By the middle of the century, one in every three Chinese is forecast to be over 60, with a shrinking population of working adults to support them. And the party has decided to abandon the one-child policy in a bid to help raise the population from 1.3 billion to an estimated 1.45 billion by 2030. Clifford Coonan, I take it that this will be a popular policy shift, more probably in rural areas than cities, but can we expect a a baby boom? Um... I think it would be definitely a, be a popular decision because uh, the one-child policy wasn't liked um, in 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 China. But uh, whether it leads to a baby boom is a is a is a different question because um, in some ways people have adjusted so much and because the economy has risen uh, has grown so much that people are actually um, they're you're finding that fertility rates are are relatively low even in places where. They've allowed, uh, like in the cities where people are allowed to have more children. So um, it's going to be quite a mixed picture. Now, families used to get around the old policy. And how, how did they do that? But I gather the scale of forced abortion was very substantial. And infanticide was used to favour boys. That's right. At the, at the moment, in, um, in, and, and still, and I don't think this is going to change, is that you can't do scans to determine the sex of a child because uh, for so long um, people would just... Um, abort if, if it was going to be a, a girl. You still see a huge uh, swing towards male male children, um, but at the same time, increasingly as urbanization happens, uh, you're seeing more and more women succeeding in the cities. So you have a different kind of scenario emerging. I think that ultimately, though, people want to have boys, but um, the situation is becoming slightly more complex. And, and the scale of forced abortions... Um, forced abortion has always been a very difficult thing to, to um, work out exactly how, how much is going on. Uh, Chen Guangchong, uh, the, the, um, the blind barefoot lawyer um, about whom we've written very much uh, in the paper, who is now in the U.S., um, he spent a lot of time writing about this um, and how many people uh, were, you know, going for, uh, were being forced to have abortions because as late as eight months, because of the one-child policy. 
generally though i think um it's much more it's much earlier and um it's much more the fact you lose your rights you lose rights to education you lose rights to pensions and things like that you know and you also have to pay these huge fines which are you know can often be like two years salary so i think that's what most people are concerned about and what will be interesting with the new legislation is whether the one child policy turns into a two child policy that people who have three children um have to pay the same fines Yes, indeed, many second children have lived in a sort of strange limbo existence. Uh, one government researcher has estimated that there's at least 6.5 million Chinese with no official status because they were born outside the family planning rules. Uh, they, they live a strange existence, uh, unrecognised, hidden, no school, no residence permits, no marriage even. That's right. I mean, they're called black children and they fall between the rules i suppose it'll be interesting to see whether they get rehabilitated now under the new legislation or whether they have to uh you know continue as they are um as you say between two schools kind of a lost generation in many ways uh, talk to me a bit about the little emperor phenomenon it's it's kind of amazing when you go to a park on a sunday morning and um you'll see this this child wearing a, a, a army cap and he's surrounded by um six or seven adoring aunts, um, and you realize as you look at them that this child is actually going to, when he grows up, going to be paying for their pension. And it's a very clear sort of picture when you see it like that, you know, and obviously this is unsustainable. You know, I mean, this is a, a country where you had a huge number of children, just like in Ireland and in the, in the early part of last century. Um, you know, you had a lot of, a lot of kids coming up then suddenly it stopped. You know, 30 years ago, you just had one per family, and, you know, with obvious exceptions. And so um, what you're seeing now is a very different society. You know, these children who grow up, the little emperors, they're lonely, they're sad, they're... Um, spoiled rotten. They, they miss having siblings. Yeah, exactly. And spoiled rotten, literally, because everyone else, you know, they also have to deal with this incredible criticism. You know, everyone's saying, oh, look at you, you're spoiled, you know. And you, you almost feel for them, you know, because... They haven't done anything wrong. They just happen to be a product of this particular system. Quite an amazing uh, situation. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that changes now with the, with the two-child policy. Now, families wishing to have a second child would still need approval. Isn't that right? Um, that's right. I mean, basically, the way it'll probably work out is that um, you have one child and then a couple of years later, maybe four or five years later, you can have a second child. The approval process... I mean, you already have to get approval to have one child. So it's not like it's going to be, uh, you know, they're not reinventing the wheel here. But I imagine it'll just be, it's a psychological thing that people will get into the idea of having two kids. But like I'm saying earlier, you know, I just wonder, because Taiwan has, has, has a very, very low birth rate. Uh, Hong Kong is a very low birth rate. Um, all these Chinese cultures do not have a very high birth rate. So maybe the two-child policy um, won't be enough to actually kickstart a kind of um, population replacement program like the, like the Chinese hope. Now, there's been a, another initiative from the Communist Party in, in, in recent days, and that's the ban on party members playing golf. Does this mean that you're going to have no difficulty getting, getting onto the course? <laughs> the golf ban is a, is a, is a long-standing one. It comes and goes. Zhao Ziyang, who was the famous party leader who went down to meet the students in 1989 on Tiananmen Square. He, he's apparently, a, he was a big golfer. Um, 
But it's not really a good thing for, for party members to go golfing anyway because it's, it's seen as being off message and whatever. I, I think it's going to be a long time before golf becomes part of the party activities when they go for their annual, their annual meeting up in Beidai Ho. <laughs> Thank you very much, Clifford. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code Irish Times to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now to Washington and to the Republican race for the presidential nomination. Tell me, Simon, who is Ben Carson and how come he's leading the Republican field? Is he popular with the Tea Party crowd? He is. He's also popular with the evangelical uh, Christians, uh, but he has huge following amongst the conservative uh, ranks of the Republican Party, amongst those Tea Party voters. He is a retired pediatric neurosurgeon. He's the only African-American candidate in the Republican race. And it's quite unusual in that he has this uh, strange kind of debating style. He has this calm demeanor, this soft-spoken nature, somewhat of a slow professorial style of speaking, which is the antithesis of another outsider, uh, Donald Trump. But what's made him popular amongst conservatives is that he has a compelling rags-to-riches story. He's kind of a living, breathing example of the African-American dream. Uh, And American voters love these stories of the underdog done good. He was raised by his mother uh, and his... uh, she also raised his siblings after the father left home when he was eight, and he credits his mother with uh, putting him on the right educational track. Yeah, he studied at Yale and went on to become the director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, at the age of just 33 years. Um, and he's also well-known for pioneering operating procedures for brain cancer and epilepsy, and he won international fame in 1987 for performing the first surgery to successfully separate twins conjoined at the back of the head. So out of that work, he's become a very popular role model for young black children. Uh, and his 1992 autobiography, Gifted Hands, became essential reading for young African-Americans. Um, he's moved into politics in recent years. Uh, his book, America the Beautiful, in 2012, was very critical of Barack Obama. And then he seemed to hit the political radar amongst conservatives when he was the guest speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in February 2013. Conservatives particularly loved the fact that he criticized President Obama's health care plan, Obamacare, when the president was sitting just two seats away from him. Uh, and conservatives also like his his uh, his tax reforms that he's proposing. Uh, on the back of that, those high-profile um, appearances, a draft Carson political action committee was established that raised a lot of money and on the back back of that, he was pushed into the presidential race, announcing his candidacy in May. And he's attracted a lot of very controversial, uh, lot of, a lot of controversy over some of the remarks that he's made. He's spoken out against political correctness, saying that PC culture is destroying the nation. Uh, he called Obamacare the worst thing that has happened in this nation since slavery. He once said that homosexuality was a choice, pointing out that prison inmates go in straight and come out gay. And he later later apologized for that one. Um, And he's also pro-life and supports a ban on abortions after 20 months, uh, after 20 weeks, I should say. And he has recently likened women seeking abortions to slave owners. So he's come out with some very, very uh, sensational things that has attracted a lot of attention. But it's done nothing. Yeah. 
it's, it is bizarre, and it's done nothing, though, for his standing in the polls. He, the recent polls this week, there was one on Monday by NBC News and Wall Street Journal, which put him at 29%, six points ahead of Donald Trump. And he's doing particularly well in the conservative states, uh, particularly in Iowa, which would be the first state in the country to hold a nominating contest for the candidates in 90 days' time. But he, his success in, in the polls is very much to do with the fact that he's not a politician and that he can stand as a sort of member of, not, not a member of the, of the political establishment. Donald Trump has responded to, to him quite petulantly, berating the citizens of Iowa for deserting him. How did he respond face to face in last week's presidential debate? Well, what was strange about the debate was that Donald Trump chose not to go after Ben Carson. Trump seems to align himself with Carson as that political outsider, uh, which is very popular given the unpopularity of Washington, of establishment politics, and of the uh, political mainstream. Uh, And Trump and Carson seem to have... uh, they perform this kind of duo act in the in the debates where Trump does not attack Carson and they kind of leave it to the, the, the lower polling politicians to attack one another. So it's quite an interesting tactic that Trump is uh, pursuing uh, against Carson. But do you think that Donald Trump has actually blown it now and that he, that he will begin to fade in the polls? I think it's uh, I think it's kind of too early to say that a lot of people were uh, really surprised that Trump had managed to stay uh, so long as front runner, um, and certainly they thought it was a summer uh, a summer story. Uh, but it's moved beyond that. Uh, it's unlike 2012, where you had the likes of Herman Cain, the former CEO of Godfather's Pizza and the Tea Party activist from Georgia. He was a front runner for a time, as was Michelle Bachman, another Tea Party favorite, a hard right conservative, the U.S. Congresswoman from Minnesota. So I think. It's really going to be come down to the fact that whether Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, the Texas senator, um, can catch up on Trump and Carson. Also, I don't think it's – you have to be careful as well. It's, it's, you can't read too much into Iowa because in previous campaigns, uh, the candidates that won in Iowa didn't go on to do particularly well. You had Mike Huckabee won Iowa in 2008 and ultimately came third behind John McCain. Uh, and Mitt Romney, and then Rick Santorum, the former Pennsylvania senator, he won in Iowa in 2012 and came second behind Mitt Romney. So I think you have to look beyond Iowa, even beyond New Hampshire. This, given the size of the field, it could be uh, well into the primary race before we know who the eventual nominee is going to be. Now, way way back in the field, the second race is underway. Uh, Jeb Bush, initially seen as the heir apparent to his father and brother's presidencies, has now been passed out by Florida's Marco Rubio, and they had an interesting exchange during last week's debate. But Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term, and you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get like three days where you have to show up? You can campaign or just resign and let someone else take the job. There are a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck in Florida as well. They're looking for a senator that will fight for them each and every day. I get to respond, right? 30 seconds. 30 30 seconds. Well, it's interesting. Over the last few weeks, I've listened to Jeb as he's walked around the country and said that you're modeling your campaign after John McCain, that you're going to launch a furious comeback the way he did by fighting hard in New Hampshire and places like that, carrying your own bag at the airport. You know how many votes John McCain missed when he was carrying out that furious comeback that you're now modeling it I'm, under? He wasn't my No, Jeb, I don't remember. Senator. Well, let me tell you, I don't remember you ever complaining about John McCain's vote record. The only reason why you're doing it now is because we're running for the same position and someone has convinced you that attacking me is going to help you. Well, I've been, Here's the bottom line. I'm not... My campaign is going to be... About- uh, who is Marco Rubio? Um, does he... 
share a lot of Bush's positions. I know on, on immigration, for example, and his closeness to the Hispanic community, he's very much more like Bush than any of the other candidates. He's probably more centrist and mainstream than many of the candidates. Well, Marco Rubio, he tends to pivot between positions. He's the youngest of the remaining 14 candidates in the race. He's in his first term as U.S. Senator for Florida. And if he is elected president, he would be the first Latina president. He, uh, his story with uh, Jeb Bush is very interesting. The two of them uh, were very close in Florida. Bush uh, acted as a mentor, and Rubio was something of a Bush disciple as he, when, when Bush was governor of Florida. Um, and Bush shepherded him through the Florida state government. He uh, became the youngest ever Speaker of the Florida House in 2006. And Rubio stood back in 2009, waiting to see whether Jeb Bush, who had finished as governor of Florida at that point, to see whether he'd run for the Senate. When he didn't, uh, Rubio decided to, to run against uh, the moderate Charlie Crist. In the end, uh, Rubio surprised the Republican establishment and he won uh, that Senate seat in that Tea Party wave that came up uh, in 2012 against President Obama. And he ran as a deeply conservative outsider to Christ, and he was a favorite of the Tea Party, but he really isn't typical of the Tea Party. He's been pegged as an outsider uh, during that campaign, but he shifted position. Uh, for example, in the last two to three years, he's drawn closer to some of the moderate Republicans in the Senate, the likes of Mitch McConnell, John McCain, Lindsey Graham. And in 2012, he was one of a gang of eight senators uh, who uh, mixed uh, mix of Democrat, Democrats and Republicans who voted for a comprehensive immigration reform bill. But when Rubio saw that bill performing pretty poorly and getting a very poor response from the uh, Republican grassroots and from the conservatives, particularly amongst House Republicans, he disowned it. Um, and that left him open to back accusations that perhaps Rubio has a glass jaw. He caves in in positions when he sees that it's not politically and popular. Uh, and then in the autumn of 2012, he shifted back towards the anti-establishment wing of the party. He, uh, perhaps that was because of the reaction to the immigration bill. And he voted against a bill that would have ended the government shutdown. And that shutdown two years ago was very unpopular. It was very, very damaging for the Republican Party. But since then, he shifted back uh, to the center. He's trying to uh, pitch himself as an establishment candidate, trying to win over some of those voters and, more importantly, some of the donors uh, that Jeb Bush would be winning over in the moderate wing of the party. So he's, he's moved positions uh, basically in response to the political wins. Uh, he's trying to cast himself as someone who can um, both win over conservatives and moderates and also can challenge who the, the, the person that the Republican Party expects to be the Democratic nominee, and that's Hillary Clinton. And, and Bush, indeed, you mentioned, um, he, he's much less impressive than his bro brother, um, but probably more of an intellectual, of a policy wonk than his brother, probably would make a better president. Well, that's certainly coming across in debates. He's coming across as flat-footed, wooden. Uh, he's, his campaign is really quite anemic. It needs a, a shot in the arm. Um, he's tried to revive his campaign. Uh, on Monday, he announced a new slogan, Jeb can fix it. Uh, and he's really trying to cast himself as someone who's a doer uh, and trying to move above the noise of the debates, move above the noise of the likes of Trump in the campaign. Um, he's tried to spin this terrible debate performance uh, last week in the third Republican debate in Boulder, Colorado, 
as a sign of seriousness rather than vulnerability. He's trying to show more positivity that he's someone who uh, is, is above the kind of vaudeville of the uh, Republican debates. He's mocked the other candidates, saying these are candidates disguised as television critics. And he's saying this election is not about a set of personalities, but about a set of principles. It's about doing and not just talking, which is a dig at Rubio um, and his criticism of Rubio not showing up for Senate votes. Um, and Bush has tried to cast himself as someone who's not stepping into the role of the angry agitator that, that, um, that the debate process has created for uh, the Republican primary. The problem for Bush, though, is, is he, while he comes from this political dynasty that has given him this ready-made network of donors and supporters and really given him a plausible cause to become president, he's been cast as this establishment candidate and voters are not warming to that. They're warming to the anti-establishment voices such as Donald Trump and Ben Carson. Last week he lost one of his biggest donors to, to Rubio. He did. He lost um, Paul Singer, who's a billionaire investor. Uh, Singer obviously saw, like the rest of us, the performance that Rubio put in and the very poor performance that Jeb put in, and he swapped over to... Um, uh, to, to Rubio's camp, and Rubio's campaign has said that other donors are considering switching over. So they're really they're making hay on the back of of, of Jed's very very poor performance. And is this and also, is this in your view, if you had to put money on it, the the contest, uh, the Bush Rubio contest, the one that will actually produce the nominee? Well, I think that Rubio is really shining at the moment. He's um, presenting himself as someone who's of the future. He, he mentions that he's the 21st Kansas, and that's as much uh, a dig at Jeb Bush as it is at Hillary Clinton. Um, he's really got an energy about him that's very exciting, uh, that he's a very skilled debater, um, and that really came across in the third debate, as it did in the other debates. He really stands out amongst all of those candidates on that stage in the debates. Um, and also, I think that his position, the fact that he's the son of Cuban-American immigrants, that he's the potential uh, to win over more um, Latino supporters is key for the Republican Party if to win over that very important demographic in the general election next year. Well, listen, thank you very much, uh, Simon. That's all for today. Thanks to Clifford Coonan and Simon Carswell and to our producer today, Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound.